You're listening to WORT. The show is the Green Morning Radio. And in the studio, actually not in the studio, but sitting outside of my house, pre-recorded as usual, like all the shows are here currently on WORT, I'm speaking with freelance radio producer and cultural historian Craig Ely. Welcome to the show, Craig. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. And Craig is here because he is a... uh, Again, I say cultural historian, he has done a lot of studying on Folkways records. And of course, a lot of us associate Folkways records with all this music I've been playing for the last two hours, because I have been focusing on a lot of Folkways uh, recordings. Um, But that's only about 80% of the sort of uh, ovure, I guess, (laughs) way to put it, right? Yeah, I mean... Um, so Folkways is an incredible record label. Obviously, you've got the Woody Guthrie, the Lead Belly, all of the field recordings that were made by the Lomaxes and others. But the thing about Mo Ash is that he really imagined the record label from the beginning as a kind of encyclopedia. I think he even at one point called it an encyclopedia of sound. And to flesh that idea out, he had a bunch of records that we wouldn't nowadays consider music at all. Mm-hmm. Um, environmental recordings, recordings of Everything from the sound of frogs, which we're going to listen to, to sounds just recorded in like an office building. I mean, they he was really interested in capturing pretty much every sound that could be captured at that time. M- much like we're capturing airplanes flying overhead <laughs> and birds. But that's just going to be part of the ambient noise that people like about this. So so your specialty was in this area, er- er- your specialty of study was in the area of the non-musical side of the folkways recordings then, right? Yeah, I got interested when I was in grad school in how people have historically recorded environmental sounds, kind of quote-unquote environmental sounds. And in the early days of recording, that was actually just animal imitation. <laughs> I mean, the the equipment in the turn of the century, uh, you know, 1890s, 1900, was all confined to music studios. You couldn't go out into the field and record anything. So people would go inside a studio and they would whistle and they would say, this is sort of what a whippoorwill sounds like. And that, that's kind of a whole other story. But yeah. by the time, you know, the magnetic tape recorder develops and really becomes popular around the 1950s, which is where a lot of the material we're going to hear today comes from, mm-hmm. um, that just totally changed the game in terms of what could be recorded and how it could be recorded. So once, um, you know, field recordists and producers got access to magnetic tape, you could really put this thing on like a, you know, basically a big purse and uh, and make a recording almost anywhere. Now we're talking reel-to-reel, portable reel-to-reel recorders. Yeah, exactly. Like um, the classic, the you know, the Nagras. The Nagra. Yeah. <laughs> and, and was there a certain microphone that went with it as well? Is there sort of a standard? Because the Nagra, a lot of people say, they, yes, they've heard of the Nagra machines. That Lomax going out there with his Nagra recording these things. Um, were, were there certain microphones that were You know, that's from? a good question. I actually don't know the answer <laughs> to that. Um, you would think I would because I, I think a lot about magnetic tape, but I haven't thought a ton about the input device actually. So... I don't know. <laughs> okay, so these people had to have just just reels and reels of blank reel-to-reel tapes with them as they went out in their in their field. Recordings. Yeah, and I mean we talk about this as if it's like the distant past, and it sort of was. But there are living radio producers for sure who uh, talk about still talk about like Nagra shoulder, <laughs> um, like the pain that they would oh get my. from carrying these machines around. I mean, this was practice into the seventies and eighties for sure. Um, but yeah, you would carry a ton of tape. Uh, you would figure out whatever your whatever your power source was. You had a notebook and pencil out there, so you could make your notes, and uh, and then you you hit record. But <laughs> <laughs> I should say that makes the process sound a lot more straightforward than it was. In fact, one of the things about magnetic tape is that not only did it make recording possible, it also made 
uh, a pretty much unprecedented, maybe not unprecedented, but but a really powerful amount of editing was also possible. You could slow tape down, you could sp- speed it up, you could mm-hmm. splice tape, you could make these cuts and then reassemble it. Um, and that really gave birth to things like tape collage uh, in the mid-century experimental Western classical avant-garde music traditions. Um, but even a lot of these science records were sort of what we might think of now as almost John Cage-style tape manipulations. Like a, like a pastiche kind of, of? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, just this thing we're going to hear is about taking a bird song and slowing it down by, a you know, a, a quarter speed, an eighth speed. And they did that for scientific reasons, to, you know, hear the bird song in totally new ways. They could identify notes and things that were previously inaudible to the human ear. Mm-hmm. But there's no denying the fact that they also found this, scientists and the general public, found this very aesthetically interesting. Uh, it was sort of a curiosity. It was sort of a special effect. And by taking these tape sounds and playing them at different speeds, you know, scientists got new information, but the listening public also kind of had almost a sort of novelty record uh, that you could play at home on your new hi-fi stereo equipment, which is the other part of this story. In the 1950s, of course, everyone's buying these big new sound systems. And and the advent of stereo recordings being readily available commercially. Exactly. And so this all ties into like home hi-fi culture as well as like whatever ornithologists were studying. Wow. And, And so there were a slew of these records that came out. You would find them at your record stores yeah, absolutely. Next to all the other stuff, it'd be a certain, probably a certain bin for them. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And those bins were, you know, a little different than we think about them now. And actually, anyone who's collected, even casually, has gone in and seen things like stereo test records um, or sound effects. Sound, I think is sound the one that jumps out for me. Exactly, sound effects records. They're actually a sort of part of this same tradition. I mean, Folkways was probably one of the more legitimate and actually scientifically oriented of the people putting out records like this at the time. But there is, you know, I would say a sort of direct connection between stereo test records, quote unquote science records, and sound effects records. I mean, these were all sort of records of magnetic tape collage. Um, and they were tied to, like I said before, um, you know, the they were very much tied to the home stereo market as much as they were tied to any sort of legitimate scientific practice. Interesting. So... You brought some stuff with us to hear, and uh, I almost feel like we should be playing some in the background. Just, yes, uh, I know. I should have brought a, yeah. We could, we could have had a, well, I can always put it in, in post, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. There's, if there's something we want to have, like, you know, we could put a louder, a longer mm-hmm. set of the frogs or something, yeah. if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but can we start talking about some of these you brought? Uh, the first thing we're going to hear are some frogs, right? Yeah, you know, this one is from a record called Sounds of North American Frogs, recorded by a guy named Charles Bogert. This is an important record for a couple of reasons. One is that it was weirdly a hit. Uh, There's a couple of these records that sort of became popular, I think, because they were, in some cases, marketed and sold as novelty records and sort of sonic curiosities. Um, This is from an earlier tradition in the Folkways catalog where it was still done almost like giving a scientific lecture. So Charles Bogart pops into this record a lot to sort of tell you what you're listening to. Says, okay. uh, you know, he says, this is a frog chorus that you hear in Florida. Or, you know, he kind of has a funny voice. Um, and that is sort of part of the earlier tradition of like giving a lecture on tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an example. We can hear some of his, his voice uh, and then some of these kind of wonderful calls of uh, bullfrogs and toads that he recorded. And this was, again, from the early 50s? Yes. Uh, I didn't bring my notes on this, but I would that's place okay. this one probably at 52, 53. Okay. Well, let's listen in. 
As many as two or three hundred voices may be heard in a single pond in parts of southern Florida, where the barking frog breeds along with other tree frogs, toads, and frogs. The barking tree frog is easily recognizable in a chorus recorded in Highlands County, Florida, even though ten other species of frogs are calling at the same time. Such choruses are heard only during the frog's breeding season, usually on nights following prolonged or heavy rains. Wow. So now people would buy that and, and sit in their homes and, and take in the, the sounds. You know, I don't want to overemphasize <laughs> that because sales data for Folkways is actually notoriously a little slippery. Um, Mo Ash, for all of his qualities, was a very shrewd businessman. So I've actually seen a lot of evidence, especially some of the work that he did with Cornell University, where there are long correspondences and many letter, letters sent asking for royalties payments. Um, ah. You know, the thing, with, the thing with Folkways is that every record stayed in print. But what that meant is that a lot of them were print on demand. A lot of these were very limited runs. So I'm not going to go as far as to say that these were quote unquote popular, yeah. but they, they existed in the world and certainly circulated, um, probably among a small set of either um, people interested in natural science or hi-fi stereo enthusiasts. So some of these still might be found amongst Christmas records and old 78s at garage sales. Oh, for sure. I, I actually don't want to spoil it because I feel like I'm the only collector of these. <laughs> <laughs> so I get these on the cheap, but uh, they, they do exist out there. I, I don't think you're going to spoil much, Craig. I appreciate the, the, the specialty of your passion, but I don't, I don't, I don't ruin think the market all the listeners records. right now are going to go on to Discogs and start... <laughs> Start looking for this stuff. Okay. The next one, you just have the word Tony Schwartz because there's obviously a story there. Yeah. You know, Tony Schwartz is just, I always like to bring him up. He is, I sort of like to think of him as the urban Alan Lomax. Um, he recorded, you know, he was a little bit of a germaphobe. He was a little bit, had a fear of travel. He recorded almost exclusively in the Lower East Side, New York neighborhood that he lived. Cool. Um, so the record that we can play something for is called New York 19, which was his zip code, 10019. Um, <laughs> I wondered about that. Yeah. And he really just walked around and he was a, a, a true documentarian. Uh, he did a lot of interesting stuff in his life, but a lot of it with kind of, just really represents the diversity of New York City at that time. So he'll record stuff that's in Spanish. He'll record stuff that's our sort of street songs and folk songs and, and children's songs from African-American traditions. He was just a really interesting guy. And his work ended up on the science series because, again, that was where a lot of the kind of quote-unquote pure field recordings ended up. Mm -hmm. You know, there is sort of something to be said for the connection between animal sounds and sort of sounds of foreigners and you know there a lot of ethnic the quote-unquote ethnic records were mm -hmm. sometimes put on the science series you know there's a thing to be said here about you know viewing the hierarchy of races and viewing the hierarchy of music and the hierarchy of sounds in the world and it uh -huh. is not it is not without its own sort of racial uh underpinnings but schwartz was truly um kind of democratic in who he recorded and he treated all sounds kind of with respect he did it he did a really his, his body of work is impressive on folkways um and so 
you know, the, I, I especially like these songs of children singing. So yeah, I, I love the sample we're about to play. Yeah. I really enjoyed uh, listening to it, and I'm going to enjoy listening to it right now. So, folks, here's a, essentially just a bunch of kids in New York doing their thing, you know, singing songs. I love, I love the, uh, the mixture of accents we can hear when, when the kids are singing. You can actually hear some New York. You can hear some, uh, some other stuff, and it's, it's just really pretty cool. Anyway, let's, let's, let's go play this now. Children on and off the streets... And the man thinks there's a lady who she is, I do not know. All she wants is gold or silver, all she wants is ice cream. So, so jump in my darling, so jump out my big gate. She had to come out. Indian, Indian lived in a tent. She had no money to pay her rent. She borrowed a one, she borrowed a two, and passed it on to Y O U. I won't go to Macy's anymore, more, more. There's a big fat policeman at the door, door, door. He'll fool you by the parlor and make you pay a dollar, so I won't go to Macy's anymore, more, more. I'll be playing, you know. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't suit me then, you know. But after a while, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes playing, well, I start, you know, feeling good, you know. And then I'd be able to bring out a few more beats better than the others. It, it brings a good feeling to me. That's, I know that. After a while, it brings a good feeling. I, I think what I like about those kids' recordings is there's something timeless about youth it shows that like kids are kids and it doesn't really matter what year we're talking about this is probably what, 70 years ago now or, or 65 70 years ago and i i imagine kids if they weren't looking at phones and things might end up still doing these same songs and playing these same games and i, I think that's really cool absolutely i have like an appreciation for this record now that i have a kid is oh. about to turn two and is like <laughs> sort of in that phase where he's humming and singing and babbling and there does absolutely seem to be something kind of joyful and pure about children's songs yeah the the natural rhythm that happens just intrinsically okay the next you have is the john c Lilly's dolphin sounds now there's another good story there so we have to just kind of breeze through so many good stories lily this one's crazy john john c Lilly was a really 
interesting guy. He was a scientist who, uh, as part of some 1950s government testing, was actually allowed to take LSD um, <laughs> on himself. He, he administered it to himself frequently. Th- this would explain some of this recording we're about to hear. Okay. <laughs> he has a book called Center of the Cyclone. Uh, that's a memoir that's about him sort of taking a bunch of LSD and doing a bunch of dolphin testing. So um, there's he, actually a He movie. didn't do anything to the dolphins, right? They didn't get dosed up, right? No, oh, I hope no. Not. Although not, I, I, will, I do have to say not all of them lived. Um, one of the ways that he learned so much about dolphin communication is that he implanted microphones inside their skulls. No! Um, so it wasn't totally great, but he became convinced that he could teach dolphins to speak English. Um, okay, that... That's a head scratcher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was just a lot going on at this moment. And like, And it was part of this like psychedelic era, but there was just this kind of belief or this fantasy about extra, co- extra human communications. I mean, this is mm-hmm. like SETI, you know, this is like the Voyager record. I mean, th- this is into the 1970s now, but, you know, we're kind of sending missives out to space. We're sending things underwater. There's this sort of belief that we could communicate. And mm-hmm. Lily is, I mean, as insane as he looks now, he was kind of tapped into a cultural moment where this maybe didn't seem as crazy as it now seems. No, I, I can understand that, but yeah. boy, with the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he tried to teach dolphins how to speak English, <laughs> and he recorded this record called Sounds and Ultrasounds of the Bottlenose Dolphin, uh, and that's what we're going to hear a little bit of right now. Yeah, there's something, I don't know, this was, it's both entertaining and a little disturbing about this, so I do warn listeners, this, this is about as odd as it gets, I think, in my opinion, so... All right, the dolphin sounds. Here we go. The following segment will be repeated several times. One can hear the female human voice saying hello. Immediately after her hello, the dolphin comes back with a complex series of sounds. First, listen to this segment of the idea that the dolphin is mimicking the girl's hello. He is drawing it out and using several vowels, which may be present in short form in the girl's presentation. Now listen to further samples of the same segment, but this time imagine the dolphin is not mimicking the girl's hello and is saying something else. What do you hear in the dolphin's presentation? Now imagine that in reply to the girl's hello, the dolphin, instead of mimicking, is saying, How are you? All run together, leaving out the consonants and giving us only the vowels. Yeah, that's that's just odd. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Craig. I know you're passionate about this, but no, no, no. But its oddity it, is part of what makes it interesting. Yeah, it right? is extremely I mean, novel. There's a uh, there's a really good book I like called Speaking into the Air. Uh, it's by a guy named John Durham Peters, who was a professor with me, or I studied a little bit with him when I was at Iowa. And I will just direct you to that book if you ever want to learn more about trying to talk to ghosts or aliens or dolphins. He uh, he kind of has that beat covered. It's a really interesting read. Okay, the name of the book is in... Speaking into the Air. Okay, okay, listeners, you've heard this here. <laughs> All right, next on the list: sound patterns, wood thrush. So this is part of the work I was talking about that was done with the Cornell Ornithology Lab. Um, they learned early on in the 1930s with some experiments that involved sound on film. 
uh, which is a little bit more complicated, but they learned that if they slowed bird songs down, they could start to hear them in new ways. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to include it here because it's really the first and a really good example of the overlap between, like I said earlier, these sort of scientific practices and experimental tape technique. Um, And I think that by hearing these slowed down, it's sort of a sneak preview um, you know, of the Yusuchevsky we're going to hear in a minute. But okay, so we're, so some of these bird sounds we're going to hear are not at normal speed. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think they, you can hear them at normal speed, quarter speed, uh, eighth speed. I forget. I have them all the way down to probably one thirty second or something. But we'll, we'll, we'll play them, and then we'll play them slowed down. Okay, cool. So, so again, hearing more nuances in, in the call. Yeah, and this is also sort of before, this is time shifting, right? But it's not pitch shifting, or it is pitch shifting involved with time shifting. So yeah. as you slow it down, it the actually, pitch, the pitch goes down with it, right? Now, nowadays with digital technology, we don't have to adjust the pitch. But back then, you slow something down, you speed something up, you're going to get a, a, cha- a change in pitch. Exactly. And so sort of like the dolphins with the birds, this idea of ultrasounds, there are a ton of bird sounds that we, of course, now take for granted that are way outside of the range of human hearing. That wasn't totally known until the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And so things like this tape technique established like, oh, wait, this bird has like a ton more notes up there that we've never even heard before because they're outside of 20,000 hertz, right? Mm-hmm. They're like they're way above our hearing range. So by slowing these down, it actually... Wow. I don't want to overstate this, but it actually expanded the definition of what we think of as being a sound, right? That that's you don't need to understate that. That's <laughs> that's really pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that, because like really, brilliant. sound was a thing we could hear, yeah. but then when you slowed things down and realized, oh, there's all this stuff that we can't hear until we slow it down, but it still must be a sound by our definition. A bird is making it; it exists in the air. It just doesn't exist within our hearing range. Exactly. So it really kind wow. of flipped people's wigs a little bit, and it <laughs> and it expanded. I mean, that the whole idea of ultrasound, right? Sound beyond sound, sound mm-hmm. that exists outside of our hearing, uh, was sort of a new idea, and kind of a, sort. Of, it's still sort of an interesting one to contemplate. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, next on the list. The uh, Vladimir. Okay, you get to re, you get to. Uh, Ushashevsky. Yes, thank you. It's, you know, I, I I'm notorious, and my listeners will know this. I'm notorious for reading a name wrong, so <laughs> I will default to anyone who has pronounced that name prior. 
you know, give me a folk singer like A.F.E. O'Donovan, and I just <laughs> panic when I have to read that aloud yeah. until I hear someone else say it. But anyways, that name, Vladimir... Ushashevsky. Ushashevsky. I'm, I'm even repeating it. I'm probably saying it wrong. Anyway, and he, he, a piece called Reverberation. So this yes. is the more, more art pastiche thing. Well, yeah. I mean, this is so one of the more interesting records on the science series is a record from 1952 that's called Sounds of New Music. And it includes some famous stuff on it. It includes a John Cage composition. Um, it includes some of this Ushashevsky stuff, uh, some, some early work by Otto Luning. Um, and it's interesting that it was on the science series because it really makes explicit this connection that I'm talking about, right? Which is that there are weird sounds that exist in the world. Some of them are made by animals. Some of them are made by experimental composers. Um, and the one thing they have in common is tape manipulation. So this piece is pretty much exactly what the Cornell ornithologists were doing, except instead of the sound of a wood thrush, he uses the sound of a piano note. So what we're about to hear is basically a piano note at several different speeds running through a very small tape loop so that not only does the speed change, but it also has basically what we, what we now call a tape echo. Mm -hmm. So you hear like, blink, 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 and then bloom, 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 Wow, very cool. So it's one piano note that has been tape manipulated. It's no different than the wood thrush, but this was understood as being experimental music. Of course. And so I guess one of the arguments I'd like to make at the end is that science, it's not just that experimental musicians borrowed from scientific technique, it's that scientific technique is itself a creative act and a creative project. And so when you think about the work that scientists are doing in these sort of tape manipulation ways, um, you know, this isn't quote unquote impartial, right? The, the media that they're using and the techniques that they're using are all kind of part and par parcel of a larger sonic culture that's going on at this moment. Okay. Cool, cool. Okay, so here let's... Now, this is not exactly folk music, folks, and we're not going to hear that much of it. Um, and we will get back to folk music after this interview, I promise, but uh, just a few more, because this is, again, a part of Folkways records that I think a lot of us don't think about. And, and to find someone who has a PhD in this realm is, is fascinating to have someone in Madison. So thank you for doing this. All right. Vladimir Usachevsky? Usachevsky. Usachevsky. Oh, Here we go. Yeah.
Okay, and the, and the term avant-garde certainly comes up when listening to experimental tape loops like that. Yeah, absolutely. And this was, you know, this was part of a scene. Um, uh, it became a, a little bit different. You know, in France, they sort of called the scene musique concrète, mm -hmm. uh, concrete music. Yep. Uh, in the U.S., a lot of people started calling this tape music. Uh, simply or tape art um, and it's absolutely part of a rich uh, mid-century tradition very cool and then finally the the final story here the sounds of the rainy season now i i love that you, just in your previews of what you told me about this this is interesting so. so this one really makes explicit this argument i'm making about science records being tape compositions because this was a record that moash was commissioned to do by the american museum of natural history they had an exhibit coming up that was about uh, a tribe of people who lived in a rainforest in Peru, and they sort of got this idea, you know, what if we pumped in sound into this museum exhibit? It, it truly had never been done before, yes, uh, not in a meaningful way. So they called Mo, and they said, hey, can you put this record together for us? And he never turns down an opportunity like this. He, of course, says yes, even though he has almost no recordings from Peru. <laughs> so he calls again the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they have some recordings from Columbia, he goes to the Bronx Zoo, he drives up to rural Connecticut to capture some sounds of crickets chirping, and basically starts to assemble this portrait of a rainforest, uh, using almost no sounds from, from where from it's supposed to be South from. an actual South American rainforest. Exactly. Okay. The one story that gets circulated a lot about this record, though, you kind of have to listen close, maybe I'll get you to boost the volume in post, but uh, this is a track called The Rainy Season, and allegedly Ash wasn't totally satisfied with how present the rain sounds were so i actually think it was fred ramsey jr uh, a producer who worked with folkways who lined his bathtub with newspaper put out a <laughs> microphone and then turned on the shower to get, <laughs> to get these heavy kind of plop 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 that it was supposed to sound like uh you know rain hitting a broadleaf tree um but no, it, it sounds like a shower yeah exactly. i'm sorry folks yeah, you're about to hear a shower a new york shower uh, this this story was circulated as fact among the staff at the Museum of Natural History. I've read some of the archives there, but then it sort of became folklore, and then and then maybe some people started to deny it. But it, it's absolutely a shower. Okay, all right. Well, here we go. The final installment here of our sound effects. Uh, what is what is titled "Sounds of the Rainy Season"? It's supposed to be a South American rainy season. What we're going to hear is a, a piece of pastiche of noise, including a New York shower.
Well, I mean, it's a pleasant selection of sounds. It's not like it's a, an unpleasant pastiche of noises or anything, but no, it, it's I'm, just not representative of what it really... Ex- exactly. But what's interesting to come sort of full circle on this is this is compl- this represents a sort of complete turn of events from, say, the Frog recordings. Uh, this record, in its totality, has no narration. Yep. Uh, you know, it's from a collection called Sounds of a North American Rainforest, or has some odd title, Sounds of an Amer- a Rainforest in America. Um, but it was part of this newer model that Ash was really interested in promoting that was about that was about drama, and it was about narrative. And it was about ways to create what we would, might now think of as a soundscape um, by taking out the narrator and using these kind of creative tape collage practices. This is basically the model of environmental sound recording that still exists. Um, you know, you, it's, you would be rare to find an environmental record right now that has a narrator on it. Yes, um, that's the, true. The idea is to create these sort of lush soundscapes, um, you know, by calling the album Sounds of a Rainforest in the Americas or whatever vague title he gave it. He, mm-hmm. he actually sort of take, took it out of a location to justify the fact that it was recorded in a lot of pla- in many different <laughs> places. And, and honestly, to this day, that's a kind of level of abstraction that nature records still have. You don't buy a record very rarely that's called Sound of This Specific Rainforest in the Amazon Jungle on this day that I was there recording it. It's yeah. called Sounds of the Rainforest. And this one recording is meant to stand in for what is, in fact, a large and very diverse you know, ecosystem. And so there is a way in which these sonic recordings have become more aesthetically beautiful, but in some ways less environmentally accurate. That makes sense. And and I'm not totally sure that that's a quote-unquote problem, but I just think it's something that's, it's historically interesting, and it certainly reflects changing attitudes towards nature as well. Now, um, the term ambient sound is what I want to think of when I think of this term. Is that a term that's been used, or was that only recently used? You know, ambient Uh, sound... Or does that that actually pertain pertain to something different in your world? Well, you know, it's it's not totally different. Um, Ambient sound... In, for example, in radio journalism circles, mm-hmm. you know, ambi uh, is sometimes used as a shorthand to mean exactly what we're talking about, kind of recording while you're outside in the field, re- recordings captured in the field. Obviously, you know, there's a tradition of ambient music, uh, which is musical in nature and not environmental uh, necessarily, even mm-hmm. though it's sort of about environments or f- yeah. about spaces. Um you know, but yes, this is a that is absolutely a definition of ambient sound. Okay, just, just <laughs> um, wanted to see at, how that worked. Yeah, at this time in the 1950s, that terminology wouldn't have been used yet. Yeah, of course. I think that develops in the 1970s. Yeah, that's. I think. I think with with uh, everyone associates the word ambient with Brian Eno, so, right? Because exactly. he had his ambient series, but. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, sort of the B-roll of sound when you're talking about, uh, if, you, if you're filming, if you're using television terms, you know, your A-roll is your most important stuff, your B-roll is your, you know, shots of the city to give you location and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, ambient sound, B-roll sound kind of thing. Well, again, Craig, this has been so cool. Craig, this is a freelance producer and cultural historian. What's what's the podcast you work on? So I work on a podcast. It's also the name of my production company. It's also the name of my Instagram account, which is its own little art project, but it's called Field Noise. Uh, you can find out more about me at fieldnoise.com or follow me on Twitter uh, at Craig Ely, uh, Instagram at Field Noise. I'm around Madison. Sometimes you'll just see me out and about with a recorder. Um, if you know someone who <laughs> I needs have. A- if you know someone who needs to start a podcast, they can probably call me. 